A relationship-oriented approach is where I craft a brief request with 10 questions that really matter the most. This means I can't send the same 200 questions to everybody. I have to work and think about how this specific vendor matters to us. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Dwayne Grant, Director of Information Security at Converge Technology Solutions, a Canadian publicly traded company, and previously Director of Security and IT at Blue Ridge ESOP Associates. An ESOP is a type of retirement plan for those not familiar. I have followed Dwayne's content on LinkedIn for some time, and what I love about Dwayne is that he is not a drum pounder. He has some interesting ideas, some subtle takes on things, and he introduces them in a very pleasant manner, which does not always happen online. Dwayne, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you. Glad to be here. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Just as a quick note for our listeners, I have launched Alan Alford Consulting. You can learn more at alanalford.com. That's A-L-L-A-N-A-L-F-O-R-D.com. You were telling me before the show, you've actually got a software development background. Is that right? Oh, that's that's right. So, yeah, my professional background is in software development, and then I gravitated towards security. Um, but they both have a real similarity. Um, these are professions that didn't exist in our parents' or grandparents' lives. And on both of these professions, we're building the road as we, as we move, so to speak. Um, and in software development circles... In my past, we would wrestle with what I like to call the craft of software development, uh, sharing mm-hmm. tips uh, where we would kind of push each other and, and uh, argue argue and wrestle with all kinds of, of these difficulties because it's a new field. And so cybersecurity to me isn't really that different. So I've tried to contribute in these LinkedIn conversations to help kind of shine a light in the darkness wherever I can. And I appreciate the camaraderie of the cybersecurity uh, profession and the community. You know, it's funny. We get this reputation as being these paranoid, you know, no-sayers and and all this other stuff. And yet I have personally found the cybersecurity community to be more welcoming, more inclusive, more uh, supporting each other. Than a lot of other places I've I've worked and poked my nose into, right? Like like it amazes me how many CISOs know one another, support one another, will just stop doing what they're doing to help one another. Like I was talking to a recruiter today who chose cybersecurity as his specialty specifically because of that phenomenon. Well, that's great to hear. I, I certainly know I've benefited from a lot of people who've uh, you know taken some time aside to talk with me to share share some knowledge and. Likewise, I try to mentor some people, and I, I see a lot of uh, you know the good the goodwill that we have in the community. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. So, so you and I before the show talked about a few topics, and I just decided I wanted to do sort of Dwayne's cool takes on a few different things. Show um, the first one is the old saying: "No culture." We always talk about how we can't be the office of no anymore, and the old the old joke about Doctor No, the CISO is Doctor No from the James Bond movies. Um, we always talk about how that's dead and how we've moved past that, but rarely do people actually give practical tips and pointers on how it's dead and how we get past it. So 
if we're going to get past this reputation as hall monitors, um, what are some tips you've got for how we actually get there? Well, I'll I'll share uh, a, you know kind of two ways that I've kind of tried to guide the dialogue because when you get down to it, that's really really what it is. So, in the back of my pocket, there's going to be a certain amount of authority that I can say no, um, but. Ultimately, I don't want to use that very often. I think we know some of the reasons why it's, you know, it, it creates a kind of animosity, a little hostility, and you do it very much and people are going to kind of go around you. So yeah. we, uh, if we overuse it, I think of it like how my English teacher back in elementary school would say, you overuse an exclamation point, it loses its its impact kind of thing. Right. So we're, we're trying to avoid it. So what I've tried to do is a bit of a, what I kind of, kind of using the Socratic method to guide discussions. So supposing, take a scenario where somebody has come to me and I'll, and I'll kind of um, massage a real world example to protect the, uh, the, the innocent or guilty, however, <laughs> you, may, however you may uh, say. But uh, suppose somebody comes to me with a bad idea, like it would be really convenient in this business process when sending out this email, telling people that a particular tax form is ready for them to pick up on the web portal. If mm-hmm. we just attached it to the email, that sounds great. That's, this is, this is what they've kind of come with. All right. right I imagine right. a lot of people are starting to uh, get a little uncomfortable in their chair uh, hearing this already. But uh, so the knee jerk reaction of just saying, hell no, um, is, is definitely there. There's some right. reasons, but uh, what I do is first off is I try to say back, what they've told me to make sure I understand, because first off, I've been surprised um, mm-hmm. and that uh, you can miss some things. And, and this is a good communication tool in general, just to make sure you understand what somebody's asking of you. And uh, it also, you know, I'm, you're going to hear this a few times. It builds goodwill that somebody you're, yep. lis- you're actually listening. Um, and I also, secondly, acknowledge the uh, the upsides of this proposal. Like, you know, I see that that really would be, you know, convenient, um, like genuinely, because a, a lot of times people's ideas are rooted in trying to do something good. They're thinking mm-hmm. of the customer, the client, some, some, you know, something. And I think you have to acknowledge that because, as I'll show, we're wanting to work towards achieving that in a safe way. And then I sort of ask them, however is there some ways this could go wrong? Is there any, what are we missing here? Any, let's just think this through a little bit. Um, And gradually what I've found in the discussion, they'll start to pick out like, oh, well, what, what if we somehow crossed our wires and people got the wrong document and, um, or uh, what if, you know, what if, um, their angry uh, ex-spouse has access to their email, um, and there you uh, go. You know, or you know, they start and um, and and pretty soon, what happens with a patently bad idea <laughs> is that the person will effectively say no to themselves. And now, I haven't had to use you know uh, one of my quiver, you know, arrow out of my quiver, uh, using you know shooting my shot basically uh to tell them no they've said no to themselves but usually in our conversation we'll go but but can we make this easy is there something we can do so that that's that's one example yeah help them to say no to themselves i love that the socratic method is just just ask the questions walk them through it lead them down their own journey of of realizing like oh bad idea i love that 
All right. So we also talked about uh, before the show, the privacy impact assessment um, and, and how this kind of ties into your not saying no. Right. And, and this takes um, a bit of executive buy-in to get some support around this. But the idea of a privacy impact assessment is that, that in your organization, that before some significant um, kind of change to a process or program acquisition, that you basically, you know, fill out a brief form and you usually do this in consultation with somebody in the security mm-hmm. team to try to determine what the effect could be. And then I like the effect for security and privacy. And then you'll have an opportunity to say, is there a way to reduce that effect? Examples would be uh, redacting sensitive information, eliminating sensitive information. You know, there's a host of a host of ways that this can, and I won't go through all of it, but um, you can find good templates out there. Uh, the key to this is that we all know that trying to bolt security on at the end of a process is really costly and painful. So right. As you get people invested more into doing privacy impact assessments at the front and they begin to see, wow, this was so much easier to work through these issues before we had, you know, built code or committed, um, you know, committed a lot of resources in one direction. Uh The, The ultimate effect here is that as a security professional, I'm no longer trying to say no to somebody or or to or to create a big spend to change things late in the process, what I'm doing is I'm having a conversation about how we can have a safer yes. And and then people start becoming advocates and champions of the security program because you're helping solve problems and you're doing it affordably. Uh, I love that. And I've, I've been in this circumstance before where it's like so, somebody asked me one time, how do you know you've won? Like, how do you know you're winning the game as the CISO? Mm-hmm. And the answer is when they're coming to me, second guessing themselves because of a security concern. I like that. I, I get a developer who shows up in my office going, I was going to do blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking mm-hmm. about blah, blah, blah. But then it occurred to me that security implication, da, 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 da. Maybe this wasn't a good idea. So I thought I'd come talk with you about it. Before a moment of doing occurs, the security awareness is there. It's ingrained, and their first thought is, let's go have a conversation with the security team. Let's talk to them. Let's have a chat about it. This is a cooperative partnership, not a hostility. This is not the office of no. Like, that's when you know you're winning the game. I, I just and, and it sounds to me like your PIA is a great vehicle to do exactly that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that 100%. That's a, that's a great indicator. I like that. All right, let's see here. We're going to move on subjects, uh, and we're bouncing around, folks. Forgive me. Dwayne and I talked about a few different things, and I just thought we'd just do, uh, oh, my goodness, Dwayne's world. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to go for um, our next topic, which is a really interesting one. Dwayne has some cool ideas on this one, too, and I wanted to dive into this, is third-party risk. Um, I I think all of us can agree that the current methodology for third-party risk consists of questionnaires we hate, Questionnaires they hate to receive, questionnaires whose answers are of dubious value, and then every now and again you get somebody who says S bomb, S bomb, S bomb, and okay, great. There's some vendors actually doing that. Check the box. That's cool. Do we know how to ingest that, process that, parse that, and really utilize that? That's question number one. And question number two: What about the 99% of vendors that don't have an S bomb? So it seems like third-party risk is just not working for us, and we know this, and and we continue to struggle. And I think a lot of folks just continue beating their forehead on the same wall. Um, you've got a bit of a, uh, an approach on this one. So what do you think um, is our starting position for third-party risk? Like how should we 
how should we kick this thing off to contextualize it well? Well, I think um, let's start with kind of the table stakes that we in security often talk about. We basically say that this whole security program rests on people, process, and tools in that mm-hmm. order. All right. right. So now think a little bit about what we do when we conduct uh, third party risk assessment on vendors. Well, we ask them in the opposite order. What tools do you have in place? Um, what are these various processes, meaning do you do this? Do you not do that? And so on. And then when it comes to people, we in the real relationship uh, business of this, we might ask, do you do criminal background checks? Um, right. Do you have somebody who's on the hook to sign as the security officer at the company? So, right. um, so what I think thought about this a little bit is to kind of turn this around um, with a relation oriented approach. Um, So another and another part of that status quo is as such, we send out a 200 question thing to, you know, some spreadsheet. Right. Um, You know, they 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 ignore it because it's lost, kind of lost in the pile. You remind them about it. You know, there's a sort of rigmarole that eventually you get back a, a a list of primarily yeses. And at that point, everybody's so tired of the thing that we're, we're all yearning for the compliance check to happen. But right. at no point in this process is, has any security gotten any better or anything actually tangibly moved. So this is where I want to talk about a different approach. Yep. So a relationship-oriented approach is where I craft a brief request with 10 questions that really matter the most. And, you know, 10 is kind of arbitrary, just a small amount of questions. This means I can't send the same 200 questions to everybody. I have to work and think about how this specific vendor matters to us. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a little work on my part. So so you've got a superset of maybe your 200, but you're literally choosing a tiny subset on a per vendor basis to say, these are the 10 relevant or the 12 relevant or the eight relevant for this particular relationship with this particular, they're going to be using our data in this way. Like you're, you're, you're taking a superset and honing it down on a per vendor basis. Is that, is that what I'm getting? Absolutely. Um, Okay. And then uh, the vendor's usually kind of relieved and they can answer and usually answer that fairly, fairly rapidly. And probably more honestly, too. Oh, I think so. Yes. Because I'll tell you right now, I've, I've been on both sides of this fence. I've been the vendor and I've been the not mm-hmm. vendor. And I've asked for the questionnaires and I've answered the questionnaires. And as the vendor, you inevitably have a junior person on the team who's filling these things out. Because that's not CISO's not going to waste their time answering every questionnaire that comes along, right? Like somebody junior on the team is going to do it. And you generally have somebody more senior kind of start the process and train them and teach them. And one of the one of the lessons is, you know, always put your best foot forward, right? Don't lie, never lie, but always put your mm-hmm. best foot forward. And so you'll end up with these yeses that are really yes buts, or you'll end up with yes buts that are really no buts, and you'll end up with no buts that are really no's, and you'll end up with a lot of confusion and chaos. And it's not like the CISO has the time to sit here and peruse all 200 answers to all 200 surveys. Like, you have to rely on the team to do it, and the team's going to do their best foot forward approach. And I think part of what happens is when you're inundated with 100 questions, it becomes very easy to gloss through and go quickly. I agree. Yeah, that's a good point. But if it's just 10 questions, 
you're going to take it more seriously because it's only 10. It's in your face, and it's like, oh, it's just these 10 things. You're going to take your time with each one, and probably your yes buts will be yes buts, right? Mm-hmm. I think I think that that's you know that's a part I had not considered. I appreciate that um, because I do think it does engender more, a, a little bit more candid discussion. It's easier to care when there's less in your face. It's easier to care about 10 answers than 200 answers. Mm-hmm. 200 becomes a gloss over. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think there's a there's a it, it initiates off of a position of goodwill that is, I'm not expecting them to be perfect on all of this. This isn't a score. Right. This isn't a score. You know, how many N out of 10 are you? Uh, but that we want to understand the the, secure, the security posture and the things that matter. And that's part of the opening le- letter about this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'll tell you where it really, where it really kind of uh, gets interesting is the follow-up meeting. Um, that I schedule with them. So I try to set up about maybe a 30 or 45 minute call to discuss the answers. I mean, and some of that depends on the answers that are that are given. Sure. But there's three things that I really want to learn in this call. Um, I want to know first what security improvements that they've made over the past year is um, my it may not be evident. And part of what I'm looking right. for is, is there somebody around there that's kind of excited to tell me this? Um, or is this, right. uh, you know, right. and I'm kind of reading, is there, mm, are, are they in this because for the love of it? I mean, I, you is, know, is there some, oomph? yeah. Yeah. And, and I kind of like to see that not an absolute vital thing, but I like to see it. Well, and that's your, that's your putting the people first in your people process and technology, right? Like, like, do you have folks who care and are driving? Yeah. Right? So I've had some where there's somebody who's really enthusiastic about some, you know, project there, you know, that is something that they put in place. And I think this is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's what I want to see. And it's kind of related to the other, which is the second thing is what is their security roadmap for the year ahead? Um, this is helpful because it may, because I may be able to give a little bit of feedback on things that they have not yet implemented the way it will, the way it could affect us. Um, and I'm sure they would like to hear, to hear this. And, um, you know, just, I'm talking very abstractly here, of course. And then the third, and this is where I really found some benefit is I asked, what are other clients like us doing to be more secure on your platform or service? And right. I'll never know. I'll never get that kind of Intel out of a, out of a yes, no questionnaire, um, because mm-hmm. what I've heard is they say, oh, well, I see you're in the financial services and, uh, you know, all of your employees seem to sign in from one, you know, one location, don't they? And I go, yeah, well, we could IP restrict uh, the authentication, just add that little additional, um, you know, yeah. but, but, you know, defense in depth kind of approach or, you know, I mean, we, we all know exceptions, Alec, but it's, it's incremental. So little things like that, that where we finish those conversations saying, this is how we can actually be more secure in our business relationship together. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I just feel like that has so much more value. Um, now it has value, but you know, I can also talk about how there are, you know, limits and I'm sure a lot of people are listening and go, go, Dwayne, you're nuts. I have, you know, I have X number of vendors and I'm not going to do that with every vendor. And I'd say, right. you know, I, you know, I agree, but, um, I think you have to prioritize. And if you're not, if you're not trying this with some vendor, um, you're, you're probably missing out is, is what I would say. You're missing out on better relationships with your vendors and uh, moving the needle. Let's pause really quickly right there for an over-the-top Texas-style word from our sponsor. 
Howdy, y'all. Asset management for IT and security sure ain't easy, and our networks are fixing to get more complex. But I reckon there's a better way of doing things, and it starts with Axonius. Axonius helps you lasso everything in your environment, devices, users, software, and more, to provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action. You want a free walkthrough of the platform? Head on over to axonius.com get dash a dash tour. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash get dash A dash tour. Those second two questions especially really intrigue me because what, what you're really saying is, you know, what are you doing to improve your security? Actually, I guess it's the first and the third question. What are you doing to improve your security? What do you know about? What are you working on? What are you focused on? What can I be focused on mm-hmm. and what can I be doing? And you've engaged them in a cooperative relationship immediately with that, with that line of questioning. And I can't help but feel if they've got anybody on their side of the fence who's who's any kind of security savvy at all, they're going to offer tips and tricks on what are other clients like us doing. Here, here you go. Here you go. Here you go. And and what can I be doing? Oh, let me tell you what you can be doing. This is so cool. I'm so glad you asked. We've got this thing we want to implement, but it's not quite there yet. But you could do this thing that's a compensating control, and you know. And suddenly you are cooperatively engaging and uplifting the security of whatever that interaction is. Right. Absolutely. That, that's a brilliant strategy to me. That's brilliant, Dwayne. Well, thank thank you. I mean, it's it's, some of it's just about having you know. I keep coming back to you know the good the goodwill uh, with with vendors because I I think a a security questionnaire can be a very adversarial type of uh, experience to have together. And um, I think you have to do a certain amount of baselining. Like, let's say you're taking on a new a new vendor, you got to understand the the whole corpus of things. There's 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 a time and a place for that. But sure. when you're when you're working with a vendor where you have uh, some you know sort of cadence with them and so on, I think it's I think it's better to really focus on the outcomes and uh, the relationship than just a you know an exhaustive list of questions. It's probably largely similar to last year. Yeah, ex- exactly. And and again, they're going to gloss them over if it's too big. They're glossing them mm-hmm. over, handing them to a junior who in turn is glossing them over. So you're getting glossed and junior perspective both, right? Um, that dialogue to me seems so vital and, and so not there. And, and to your point, yeah, okay, I've, I've been in shops where I've had literally a thousand plus vendors. There's no way I'm doing a 45 minute you know <laughs> meeting with each one of them. But, but, but to your point, you can triage, you can, you can figure out who's got my most sensitive data or who's, who's the most risky attack surface representative of, of all these vendors or, you know, you can slice and dice any number of ways, right? Like, who, you know, what's the intersection of my sensitive data plus they're on the internet more? You know, like okay, I'll right. talk to those five vendors or whatever it might be, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's not a prescription for your whole you know third party risk management program, uh, but it's 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 a it's a technique that audit I believe ought to be part of the whole the whole program. Yeah, and, and it's funny we always talk about as CISOs, especially on LinkedIn, you hear this all the time. There's always somebody complaining about the vendors are just treating me like a target like a lead, like a whatever. It's not a relationship. The only vendors I want to work with are vendors who establish real relationships with me. What are we doing to extend that olive branch, mm-hmm. right? And this is an yeah. example of one of those things we can, in fact, be doing. If we act like it's a relationship, maybe they will too. Oh, that's right? a good point. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, li- live it out proper, yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Practice what you preach, right? So, all right, as we talk about building good culture, building good relationships, uh, we've kind of covered that theme sort of across both of these, right, with the office of not saying no as well as this third-party risk approach. Uh, We get to the third topic you and I discussed, which was building a no-blame culture. And this one is huge for me. i got to let you know right now, like 
blame-based culture. I have worked for that company and I left that company very quickly <laughs> because I realized there was no salvation of any sanity for any worker anywhere in that company. It was a mass egress because all the way at the very, very, very top of this company was a very blame-centric culture. The second anything happened, they wanted to know who they could yell at. They wanted to know who to point the finger to. They wanted to know who to scapegoat. And this was all the way up and down the food chain. So mistakes were no longer owned. Mistakes were covered up. If somebody did something bad that had repercussions for the rest of the business, instead of stepping forward and saying, oops, I did this thing, and you guys might want to check your this and that and the other because there could be some bad implications here, instead they were just covered up. Of course. And now the bad implications are still there. Other people are impacted and don't even know they're impacted because everyone was afraid to speak up and own a screw-up. Something as simple as my bad was not allowed in this culture. And that, to me, is the antithesis of productivity. Yeah. So how do you build the no-blame culture? What are your tips? Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, you. what's interesting is how you described it is very anchored in mistakes, the you know, honest error. And that's, um, yeah. that's the, the important thing that... Uh, most of these things are like, you know, the misconfigurations and, uh, you know, accidentally sending a document to the wrong client type of type of stuff. And that, so where I kind of start from is I begin as security professionals, um, remembering that there isn't an us and them. We are part of the same organization and we as security professionals are also capable of error. I have had security incidents which have been caused by members of the security team. And yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, people kind of get a kick out of that for a little while. And uh, so until, you know, people are perfect, uh, then we're going to have to focus on building resilient security culture around taking responsibility for mistakes. So when I talk about a no blame culture, it doesn't mean that there's no accountability. Um, or that a habitual mm -hmm. offender shouldn't face some reprimand. Um, right, right, but it, right. It just means that blame isn't your first reaction. That, that's it. That's it right there. Just that knee jerk, oh, I got to blame somebody. Like, do away with that. Yeah. But um, I'll tell you, as a security professional, I can't make that um, cultural change all by myself. Um, this, this is heavily relies on executive buy-in. I, I can't say how much, sure. how critical it is. Um, you've got to be prepared. You'll probably have to stand your ground. Um, so I'll tell a little story about this, that um, in a company where I established this, we had the, sort of the buy-in from the management team and there was a um, security incident and one of the owners of the business um, you know, called me and this, as, as, you know, as the, you know, I'm kind of dealing with the incident. It's like, who, who did this? And, and I said, um, I'm not going to talk to you about who did it at this time. And he was really upset. And nice. he said, he, uh, and he, and he said, no, we got to get to the bottom of this. And I, and I explained, you see the work I'm doing right now is actually getting to the bottom of it but it's also serving what our customers need at this, at this time. And the person who particularly did it is, is not really germane to working the problem at this time. And, yeah. and uh, for a little while, I felt like I was, I was in, I was really in the hot seat, at, but I, I emphasized that who is not as important as what in this, in this situation. And, 
I, and so, um, it was uncomfortable, but be prepared at some point. You'll probably have to remind people that we agreed as an executive team that uh, we're going to have a no blame culture. This doesn't mean the person remains entirely anonymous, but in the moment, our focus isn't about who or to blame anybody. That's, that's exactly. I mean, if somebody truly spectacularly and royally screwed up and it happens mm-hmm. and they're a repeat offender, that happens, too. You have to address it. Right. At some point, you have to, you know, write them up, possibly phase them out, whatever it might be. But, but to your point, that that moment of we've already got a crisis on our plates. If our immediate reaction to a crisis is to go chew somebody's head off, what does that accomplish towards alleviating the pain of the crisis? Not a thing. Right. Not a thing at all. Blame culture is not culture of results. Right. It's just not. Yeah, for sure. You've got a great point there. So that's a little bit about some of the principles of how to, I think, to try to, you know, establish it. But there are things to do in the moment of a, of a, of a security incident that happens that I think is okay. really important to live out that ideal of a no blame culture. So, okay. So um, you've got some steps for us. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the the uh, first thing is that when somebody, when somebody comes to you and tells you, uh, you know, Hey, I, you know, mea culpa. I made this made this mistake, and we have a security or privacy incident. Have empathy. Um, understand that that person is having a pretty bad day, and to acknowledge this. So I've said to people, yeah. "Hey, uh, I understand this is stressful for you." Um, which kind of leads into the second part is that I thank them. Um, that sounds a little weird. Um, that uh, you, this person is probably just. Just thrown your whole day into disarray. You had you had mm-hmm. ten things that you planned to do today, and uh, sort of patching up uh, this this uh, you know f- uh, unforced error was not one of them. Mm-hmm. But you thank I, you thank them because this is the exceptional person that came forward, owned up, and and accepted the mistake, so that you can yes. do something productive about it. And you need to reinforce right. that, and that's part of the empathy, but. I mean, empathy and thankfulness, which are kind of hard feelings yeah. to have in that moment. But, um, you know, people people have really appreciated it. I've had very strong relationships with my coworkers because they knew my focus was on working the problem, not kind of, you know, beating them when they were down. Yeah, yeah. All right. What's our second step? Well, it's ultimately that we're going to work the problem together. So after we've had that empathy and thankfulness with them. We're going to figure out, okay, what's our, what's our game plan? We're going to, we're going to get our, you know, head, head out, lift our heads up. We're going to, uh, do we need to, you know, document a few things? We need to make, you know, some phone, you know, phone calls. Take a classic example, send email to the wrong, some sensitive document to the client B that was met for client A. All right. Yeah. We got, we got to contact the recipient, explain the situation uh, hopefully get like some written, uh, thing, which affirms that they have deleted it on their end. Then we're going to go talk to client A and we're going to say hat in hand, uh, oops, we made a mistake. Uh, and, but we're coming forward now. Now here's something interesting. Take just that scenario I've described. Um, I have actually seen client relationships improve after having a security incident because they were impressed at how we took responsibility manage the situation and operate in full transparency. Um, yep. So uh, don't kind of, 
you know, sell yourself short that doing the right thing doesn't pay dividends. Um, naturally, everybody mm -hmm. would rather not have a security incident. But um, if you demonstrate, you know, maturity and ownership um, and, and so on, uh, good things can can actually emerge. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it ties into my whole philosophy of uh, I never look to screw up. But when I do have my first screw up as the leader of a new team, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I got my first screw up. It's like, oh, finally, I got one of these because now everyone gets to see how I deal with a screw up. Oh, that's great. And I'm going to own it. And I am going to completely like mea culpa. I am going to focus on the outcomes. I am going to do all the right things. And, and to your point, better relationships are almost always forged that way. I have had interpersonal hiccups. Uh, moments when I wasn't at my best, where later that person became the person I had the strongest bond with in the company because I owned it and I apologized and I moved forward. And I've had uh, goof ups with my team where I was the one who goofed up, where my team now learns and realizes like, oh, okay, it's okay to goof up. This is not a blame culture. It's okay. Like screwing up and dealing with it well is an incredibly valuable skill that will always pay off. I agree entirely. All right. So what's our, what's our third step then? Well, we have to have the sort of, you're going to have your postmortem. That's, you know, sort of standard operation when you have some kind of incident. Um, but your focus in this, and I think most people do this, uh, out, will be that you're going to focus on the facts and the outcomes and recommendations that you make, you know, any changes in process, but you're not focusing on the people involved. Um, Make sure that you're not writing up a postmortem about how, you know, Sally, uh, you know, deleted, uh, you know, some stuff off the file right. share or, and things like that. And so uh, and most I think most security professionals will know that. But just kind of a reminder of that, just to kind of tie, tie a ribbon on it about uh, making sure that you don't go all this way and then and then assign blame in a postmortem write up. Right. Right. The official document of record should <laughs> never have the blame in it, right? Yes. The official document of record should be about we worked together, we overcame, Absolutely. we solved, we addressed, we did this, we did that, customer happy, check the box, right? Um, that's brilliant. So this is – and it's funny how all three of these really tie together because what you're really saying is your no-blame culture and your not-saying-no culture and your third-party risk, there's some common themes with all this, which is strengthening relationships, taking ownership – and um, and and forging a better path cooperatively, right? I, I think that's really the common theme to all three of these subjects we talked about. Yeah, I, th I think so. It's almost sort of uh, like those ideas of the you know everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten type of stuff. And that yes, if we um, you know, kind of operate with integrity and uh, you know expect the best of one another and uh, go into things in good faith, uh, we can be amazed at the the outcomes we find. I love this. Dwayne Graham, thank you so much for bringing these tips down to the ranch. This is good stuff. My listeners are going to love this. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.